Well, hello and welcome. On behalf of CME Outfitters, thank you for joining us today for today's CMEO uh, briefcase title, Team Approach to Addressing Comorbidities in Aging Populations of People Living with HIV. So this program has been supported by an independent educational grant from Gilead Sciences. I'm Dr. Carlos Malvestudo. I'm an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases in the Department of Medicine at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. I'll be the moderator for today's briefcase. I'm Dr. Melana Murray. I'm an associate professor at Midwestern University College of Pharmacy in Downers Grove and also a system level HIV ID clinical pharmacist at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. The goal of today's ed educational activity is to empower learners to utilize team-based interdisciplinary care to optimize HIV and comorbidity outcomes in aging patients. Let's jump right into the case. Jeff is a 58-year-old male living with HIV for the past 30 years. He was diagnosed with hypertension six years ago and COPD three years ago. Uh, he used to smoke 1.5 packs per cigarettes, of cigarettes per day for the past 20 years before stopping when he turned 48. Um, he fell while getting out of the car yesterday and is now complaining of knee pain. He's on several medications for HIV. He's on the single tablet combination of l vitegravir cobicistat, um, uh, tenofovir, uh, FTC, and uh, um, also he is taking aspirin, 81 milligrams daily. He's on losartan, 50 milligrams daily. He's on pentoprazole, 40 milligrams daily. He's on tiopropium, 18 micrograms uh, uh, per capsule, and he's on albuterol, 90 micrograms inhaled. And he also takes uh, over-the-counter pain relievers. So we can see that he's had an undetectable viral load of uh, less than 40 copies per milliliter. Um, he has a CD4 kind of 580 uh, cells per microliter. Um, he had... Uh, for diabetes screening, um, his uh, blood glucose is 90 milligrams per deciliter, and he has a hemoglobin A1C of 6%. Um, his vitals show us that he has a BMI of 24. Uh, his blood pressure is uh, pretty good at 118 over 78, and his oxygen saturation is 93% on room air. Uh, his lipids, he has a total cholesterol of 160. Um, a low density lipoprotein uh, of 90, HDL of 52, and triglycerides of 130. We can see that his liver function tests show us an ALT of 38, an AST of 29, albumin of 3.5, and uh, total bilirubin of 0.9. His kidney uh, function, uh, we see a BUN of 22, a creatinine of 0.9, and an estimated GFR of 99. Overall, just looking at this, uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, what, you know, what are some of the, the highlights? Yeah, so I think that this is a, a typical patient that we're seeing in clinic where they are, you know, aging. Um, they have a lot of comorbidities going on. We're sort of worried about some things. They're borderline. Do we intervene now? Do we wait? When do we need to bring them back? I'll just point out too, you know, we have a comprehensive medication list, which doesn't always happen in clinical practice. So I think it's actually great that we can see all of this and kind of assess things, um, try to figure out why things were prescribed. Is, is each um, therapy optimized? Um, you know, are we 
using guidelines to make sure we're guiding what we're giving. So I think there's just a, a lot that is uh, in this case, and I know we're going to spend the next little bit of time talking about that. Right. Um, so already we can see that, you know, just from looking at his uh, medications and his labs, you know, we can uh, and we can guess as to uh, some things that could be issues. Uh, there are also, uh, for example, some medications not completely clear, you know, why uh, the patient may be taking them. Um, you know, is uh, uh, the patient is on uh, pentoprazole. Uh, uh, you know, this seems to be something that uh, he's taking on a daily basis. Uh, does he have GERD? Um, and maybe, you know, looking at that, he's also on aspirin. You know, uh, what's the reason for the aspirin? So, uh, but... Uh, I completely agree with you. This is a typical patient that we see in our clinics. Um, somebody that you know we end up having to ask questions and find out more uh, about what may be going on. Um, now uh, we see that at his biological age is 58. Um, he has a number of comorbidities, and something that we've learned um, over the years about our people with HIV um, who are aging uh, with HIV is that uh, they uh, tend to have um, more accelerated aging or um, possibly they're dealing with more comorbidities at a younger age. Um, so according to average results in frailty studies and people aging with HIV, um, you know, what is the most likely um, uh, biological predicted age? And the correct answer here is D, uh, the age of uh, 68. Um, so we see that even though he's 58, and uh, this is actually 10 years older than um, his actual biological age. Um, is this common, you know, for our patients? Uh, you know, is this, uh, in your experience, uh, uh, what is it that you see in your practice? I would say definitely about this range. And, and, you know, that comes into play when we're trying to treat comorbidities, when we're thinking about cancer screenings that we need to be aware of. So it definitely comes into play. And 10 years is, is about what we generally see. And we know, see that in our, uh, our population uh, of patients uh, living with HIV in the U.S., um, most of them are now over the age of 50. Uh, so as of 2021, more than 50% of all the people living with HIV, um, as we can see here in the uh, in the graph, um, were over the age of 50. And it's projected that by 2030, um, over 70% uh, will be over the age of 50. In this uh, uh, graph uh, here, if we look at uh, on the right, um, we can see that people living with HIV uh, lifespans even though they're now approached those of uh, people without HIV, um, but uh, there is that increased risk of uh, premature aging and frailty. Um, so, and as we mentioned, and in Jeff's case, you know, more than 10 years of accelerated aging on average. Um, <clears throat> um, but we also know that uh, they also deal with more uh, comorbidity. Um, and this greatly impacts uh, then uh, the possible onset of frailty, um, which I think it's important that we at least have 
a sense of a, of a definition for this. And you know what we mean by that is a stale a state of vulnerability to negative clinical events. Uh, so patients with frailty are more likely to um, have uh, to end up hospitalized, um, and they're more likely to progress to disability. Uh, to have falls, uh, to have issues with polypharmacy. Um, and it's important then to highlight that not everyone with HIV will age the same way. So this is, uh, there is heterogeneity in the population, as we well know. We mentioned that people with HIV are living with a number of comorbidities compared to those without HIV. Um, for example, uh, we know that uh, people living with HIV have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, in fact, uh, now uh, heart disease is uh, one of the uh, main causes of death among people with HIV. They also have um, uh, earlier onset of uh, issues of uh, like osteoporosis. Uh, there's a higher prevalence of diabetes and metabolic syndrome. Um, and as we also know that our patients then uh, tend to deal with uh, uh, chronic kidney disease, um, liver disease is an issue, uh, and this for a number of different reasons, including um, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, uh, lung disease is a problem. Um, so we see that, for example, in, um, our patient here, um, he has COPD, he has a, a history of smoking, um, which also we know that there's a higher prevalence of smoking in our uh, patient population as well. Um, and then um, malignancy is also uh, an important uh, issue for our patients, uh, not only the AIDS-related uh, cancers that we're used to, like uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but also non-AIDS-related malignancies or number of studies that have shown that, um, uh, for example, even lung cancer in our patients is uh, actually more uh, more common. Um, neurocognitive impairment is an issue as well. There's a broad uh, range that goes from uh, HIV-associated neurocognitive decline uh, all the way to AIDS dementia, uh, which uh, fortunately become less common with um, as uh, we've uh, uh, been putting people in effective antiretroviral treatments. Um, and, of course, the geriatric syndromes and frailty that we were discussing. Um, and there are multiple mechanisms um, that will drive the premature aging and the onset of these comorbidities. Uh, in some cases, this, uh, the, the HIV is an additional risk factor. Uh, so we know that, for example, for heart disease, it's an independent risk factor. Um, and a lot of these are, uh, we know that at least there's some contribution of chronic inflammation due to HIV, uh, as well as uh, immune activation. Um, um, what other processes, uh, you know, do you see uh, driving uh, premature aging? And um, what do you think is important for the, uh, the audience to pay attention to? So I would definitely say um, two things in addition to the, the list that we always want to think about mental health, because I think that that can drive negative outcomes as well. And also uh, social determinants of health, I would say almost thinking about those as their own comorbidity, because people who don't have access to transportation, transportation stable housing, um, food insecurity, we're prescribing medications, some of which need to be taken with food, and we don't 
um, always think about that and that we make assumptions that, you know, if someone is, you know, safely housed and employed that they have access to food and that may not be the case. So we kind of need to, you know, move beyond our definition of, of who we think about with that, especially when we're prescribing medications that um, some of which have a, a very high caloric content that, that need to be taken. So I think we also think about how these comorbidities interact with each other. So if someone has liver disease and kidney disease, when they have lung disease and now they're, they're not able to exercise, that's going to impact other things like onset of diabetes. So I think that um, there's definitely individual comorbidities and then the interactions between all of them. And then, you know, adding that social determinants of health kind of as a, a broader overlay, it definitely uh, builds up to quite a complex uh, continuum of care. And, you know, I know that we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the impact of uh, antiretrovirals, um, um, but, you know, they can also um, contribute, to, you know, to some of these issues as well. You know, we're clearly uh, now um, in an era of very effective and very safe antiretrovirals, but we still uh, have to pay attention to um, some uh, adverse effects of, uh, of, of antiretrovirals. Um, so we mentioned that. Uh, metabolic syndrome, obesity is an issue uh, for our patients, which may also contribute to then um, uh, metabolic disease and negative outcomes. Um, and but we know that, you know, for example, one of the most popular classes of uh, ART, the integrase inhibitors, um, it does contribute to weight gain uh, in our uh, population. I'm curious as to, you know, what are some of the guides that you follow or, um, you know, when it comes to actually uh, uh, trying to manage uh, a lot of these issues. For example, um, when it comes to bone health, um, uh, something that uh, earlier on in my practice, I, you know, I, I uh, started to become aware of um, and uh, which is clearly recommended in the guidelines is uh, the onset of osteoporosis. And I used to think of it more um, as an issue for our uh, older women, um, but then you know I, I started to see uh, a lot of men um, in their early 50s um, who had osteoporosis, and uh, which could be driven by um, uh, certain medications. But we know that in HIV is definitely more common. So, for example, one of the recommendations is a DEXA scan uh, to look for. Um, uh, osteopenia and osteoporosis in all men uh, 50 and older, uh, and in all postmenopausal women. Um, um, is this something that that you know uh, that you've seen? And then, what medications can be contributing to uh, uh, issues with bone health? So definitely, I think that once we started monitoring more, we were definitely uncovering a lot of, of very for DEXA scores. And I think that just in general, overall, um, besides, you know, medications uh, like tenofovir, that tenofovir disabroxyl rate to be specific, um, is causing, you know, potential issues and trying to switch. But then even after switching, because there's so many other things that can contribute to bone health, like, you know, for this patient, smoked for many, many years. So I think that um, you know, we want to be careful not to focus too much on, on medications because we think, oh gosh, they're on a medication that quote unquote doesn't have bone effects. Well, there's probably five or six other things going on with them where there can be bone effects. 
Uh, I think, uh, yeah, that's an excellent point. And I think, uh, you know, sometimes there's almost too much emphasis on the uh, on the medications and particularly in antiretrovirals, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, sometimes our colleagues in other specialties, you know, they look at somebody who's an antiretrovirals and they think of, you know, um, some of the adverse effects of the older antiretrovirals. Um, we always get uh, questions about, you know, what the impact may be uh, on patient's health. And as you mentioned, for example, you know, we, uh, when it comes to bone health, um, yes, TDF can certainly contribute, but we also know that smoking is a big risk factor, right, for um, uh, osteopenia and osteoporosis. Uh, fortunately for this patient, I, you know, he stopped smoking um, uh, 10 years ago, um, but a lot of our patients who smoke, you know, there are many reasons why that really should be uh, a top priority in trying to uh, ensure their, um, uh, the, uh, a healthy um, aging for them. Um, we can talk about uh, cardiovascular health, um, and I think this is a, an, uh, an important issue uh, for our patients, um, and particularly when we have to assess what our patient's risk for cardiovascular diseases. Um, the tools that we use are, for example, the ASCVD uh, risk score, um, which we know underestimates um, uh, the risk uh, in people living with HIV. It does not take into account the impact of HIV as an independent risk factor. Uh, so it's important to keep that in mind. So somebody that um, who may have a uh, low risk uh, when we um, put in all the numbers into the uh, the calculator, um, but when it comes because of HIV, then the risk is uh, could effectively be um, uh, far higher than that. Um, so um, in this particular patient's case, um, we know that uh, the ASCVD risk score gives us a um, low moderate uh, level, but uh, it's very likely that the risk is uh, uh, quite a bit higher than that. Um, so, and the recommendations are uh, changing quickly, and you know we'll talk about this in a in a little bit. But uh, uh, so we know that this patient is on aspirin. It's not clear why uh, this uh, may have been recommended to them. Um, and interestingly, the evidence supporting uh, the use of aspirin for primary prevention in people with HIV is not all that great. Um, but there's now more recent data actually showing that a statin, for example, in people with low to moderate um, uh, cardiovascular risk um, actually reduces that excess uh, cardiovascular risk and mortality uh, in people with HIV over the age of 40. Um, so it's, I think it's important to at least discuss and make an assessment uh, about cardiovascular health uh, in our patients. Um, we also need to consider, you know, uh, uh, when it comes to liver and kidney disease uh, uh, assessments, uh, such as a um, chemistry panel um, uh, with uh, uh, checking on hepatic function is important. And we may see some signs of uh, some uh, early signs, at least of, of certain issues, um, like, for example, um, uh, fatty liver disease, which we know is a uh, more prevalent in our patient population. Um, uh, you mentioned mental health before. Um, what is it that uh, uh, that we should be screening for, and how often should we be doing this? 
So definitely, you know, screening for depression and anxiety, especially with the new, you know, recommendations from the preventative task force to screen for anxiety, um, you know, it, at least once in adults. And so um, to say that we would do this at every visit, I think is, is hard. I mean, if we were screening for all these things at every visit, the visit would be two hours long. So I think that we have to both not assume, like if someone comes in and they, you know, oh, this person doesn't seem like they have depression or anxiety, we don't want to assume that, you know, we get a baseline screen and then maybe, you know, do it every year or so, however we need, or if, we, if they have a life event or something like that. And so, um, you know, that's the depression, mental health, there are screening tools for that. Um, you know, substance use disorder is definitely its, its own conversation, making sure the person doesn't feel stigmatized, that they're able to talk about those types of things, because um, there can be other implications for disease states or potential drug interactions that we want to know about and make sure that the patient feels comfortable letting us know everything that's going on so that we can work with them to make the best care decisions. And then neurocognitive impairment, I think this is something that's a little bit Again, you know, harder to do every single time, but I think trying to do a yearly or a bi-yearly screen um, just to make sure that we have a baseline and we can kind of see if there's any trends, um, which I think, you know, that's important for many of these things that we're talking about is really what are the trends in it, uh, just to try to capture things as early as possible for intervention. And we mentioned, uh, you know, from the beginning how uh, most of our patients over the age of 50 are on uh, multiple medications, not just their antiretrovirals. Um, so how much of an issue is polypharmacy? And, you know, what should we be doing about that? What should we be checking with our patients? Yeah, so I'll give a, just a little bit of a teaser here because I know I'm going to be going over this uh, in depth in a few slides. So I think that um, any anyone that comes in that is on more than five medications, definitely more than 10 medications, I think it deserves uh, a, a closer look. I think this is much more prevalent than we think that it is. I think that we don't even have comprehensive medication lists. So when you start adding herbal supplements over the counter meds, we can get up over five and 10 very easily. So it's definitely something that uh, we need to be more cognizant of checking drug interactions and, and making sure that we ask because, um, you know, people certainly don't know to tell us. And, uh, you know, especially once you ask them too, you might uncover someone who's taking, you know, way more of an NSAID than they should be for some reason. And maybe that's having an effect on their kidneys or their blood pressure. So it's definitely worth uh, making sure we have that comprehensive list because that will affect, honestly, everything else that's going on. Absolutely. We also uh, know that, you know, our patients uh, tend to deal with uh, more uh, uh, lung health issues. Uh, so, for example, this particular patient who has COPD. Um, so, and that's something that we should be um, uh, assessing for. Um, and uh, cancer screenings are particularly important, as we mentioned before. Um, and then for our patients, we uh, definitely want uh, to make sure that they're keeping up with their uh, colonoscopies. Um, and uh, at the same time, in our patient population, we see that um, anal cancer is more common. Uh, recently, uh, the results of the ANCHOR trial uh, came out, uh, which um, now uh, tell us that uh, for patients with um, um, uh, uh, pre-cancer um, pre lesions, uh, 
high-grade lesions, then they should be referred to uh, the colorectal surgery for uh, actual treatment as opposed to just uh, monitoring. Uh, it's still not clear how frequently we should be doing um, anal cytologies in my practice for my patients. Uh, we do this uh, annually. And if we find uh, abnormalities, then we refer to colorectal surgery for uh, high-resolution anoscopies and, and follow-ups. Um, similarly, uh, you know, we uh, also need to consider that for patients with a history of smoking, um, that having a, uh, a CT um, scan screening for uh, possible uh, lung cancer is important as well. Um, and of course, making sure that um, our uh, cisgender women um, are keeping up with uh, uh, and transgender men who may need uh, mammograms uh, that also they're keeping up with that. Um, so there's a lot that we need to be paying attention to when it comes to cancer. Um, uh, the one last one is uh, that uh, diabetes we know is uh, fairly common in our uh, patient population. Um, we've talked about, uh, uh, you know, certainly uh, 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 the fact that obesity is uh, um, common in the U.S. population overall, but also um, in our patient population, then there is an issue of uh, possible weight gain that may be, uh, there may be some contribution of uh, antiretrovirals as well. Um, but uh, doing a regular assessment is important, um, even though the hemoglobin A1C may not be an act, the most accurate measure in people with HIV. It's still a useful measure. It gives us an idea of where you know the trends may be going. Um, but also, we can uh, use uh, uh, fasting blood, glu blood glucose to then uh, uh, try and make an assessment and to at least identify you know pre-diabetes and diabetes in our patients. Um, Anything else that we should be um, checking for, and you know, as you said, um, this is something that, you know, particularly for our patients who tend to be very stable in uh, when it comes to their HIV, we may be seeing them twice a year. So definitely, you know, with the vaccinations, with preventative health, I would say vaccinations are everybody's responsibility. So we know that there's data showing if you know, a specialist, so like, you know, an, an HIV provider is going to say, oh, well, you know, the primary care doctor is, is going to do these. Um, but then, the you know, the primary care doctor may say, oh, well, it's vaccines, like the ID doctor should be doing this. So I think that um, then there's these people that fall um, through the cracks and no one, they don't get vaccinated. So I think that everyone that sees the patient, if they have the availability in their clinic to give the vaccine should do so. Um, if they don't, they should be referred to, you know, a, a pharmacy or someplace that does the vaccinations. Um, I know we use, you know, immediate cares as well, and that that should be followed up on too. So I think overall, we we want to make sure that we're screening, that we're also very up to date. Um, the vaccination schedule does change fairly regularly, I would say, for people with HIV, especially those who are aging. We have newer vaccines that come out, better vaccines for this population. So it's definitely something to keep up with. Um, but really to make sure we're we're all taking responsibility for that and not just assuming that another provider is going to um, look at that vaccine schedule and make sure the patient is up to date. 
Yes, I completely agree with you. And uh, I think also sometimes, you know, the primary care provider may be used to um, their patients who are not immune compromised, who may be on a different um, dosing schedule when it comes to vaccines. Like, for example, you know, we know that uh, for our patients, we want to um, give them the pneumococcal vaccine, uh, you know, really from uh, very early on. Uh, not uh, without waiting until they're uh, um, older than 50, for example, uh, or same thing with uh, the shingles vaccine. And, you know, that is something that um, can be a big problem for patients. So uh, given that earlier, um, and we know that, you know, that is actually um, something that is recommended now for patients uh, over the age of 18 who are living with HIV. We mentioned the issue of uh, cardiovascular disease in our patient population, uh, which is very common. And uh, our patients uh, in general, we can, um, we can say that the risk of cardiovascular disease for somebody living with HIV uh, can be uh, just about double that of somebody without HIV. Um, so that's why it's, it's very important that um, we look at all the risk factors that can be contributing. Um, so HIV is an independent risk factor. Um, and uh, so obviously the best thing that we can do uh, about that is to make sure that the HIV is well controlled. But even when uh, HIV is uh, perfectly controlled and the patient is virally suppressed, there is still this uh, um, ongoing chronic inflammation and immune activation that uh, then contributes to um, uh, the earlier onset of uh, heart disease in our patients. So we see a higher incidence of uh, myocardial infarction, a higher incidence of strokes uh, in this patient population. Um, so when it comes to, you know, making an assessment, and this is an area that's now changing, uh, the recommendation has been to uh, take into account uh, any um, uh, uh, HIV-related cardiovascular risk-enhancing factors. So we can use the ASCVD risk calculator to um, get a sense of what the score may be, of what the patient's uh, risk may be. And then, um, you know, if somebody has had, uh, for example, a history of uh, uh, prolonged HIV viremia before they started uh, or delayed ART initiation for a long time, or if they had a low CD4 nadir that was below 350 um, um, cells per cubic millimeter, um, or they have a history of, HA, of uh, non-adherence with their antiretrovirals, these are all uh, cardiovascular disease risk-enhancing factors that have to be taken into account uh, in then trying to decide uh, what should we be done to prevent the onset of uh, heart disease uh, in these patients. And now we have the results of uh, the REPRIEVE trial, which uh, recently ended. This was a very large trial of over 7,000 participants who were enrolled in uh, 12 countries around the world, and they were followed uh, for a median of uh, over five years. And this study was uh, stopped uh, early after the Data Safety Monitoring Board uh, determined that uh, that efficacy and the, have been have been achieved, and the, uh, the study met its primary endpoint. Um, so participants had been uh, randomized to receive uh, either a statin called pitavastatin, um, 
uh, daily uh, or uh, a placebo. This was a double-blind uh, randomized controlled trial. Um, and uh, all the participants had to be virally suppressed over the age of 40, um, and they could not have cardiovascular disease, uh, you know, at baseline. Um, and uh, the, what we know is that the patient population had a median ASCVD risk score of uh, just about 5%, which is considered then a low ASCVD risk score. But uh, what was shown was that there was a 30% reduction in uh, the incidence of cardiovascular disease uh, and mortality in this population. So um, the results are just uh, going to be coming out uh, the, uh, very soon, but we know that uh, this is likely going to lead to a change uh, in our practice uh, because now we should be considering that for all our patients over the age of 40 with um, uh, who are living with HIV, um, then we should be considering actually starting a statin. Um, and in this study, the statin was specifically tavastatin because of uh, the fact that it does it does not interact in a significant way with uh, um, protease inhibitors and NRTIs, so it does not require dose adjustment um, for uh, any of the ART regimens that we use. Um, and also because it had shown that some um, um, the uh, some good uh, impact on immune activation and inflammatory markers uh, in uh, people living with HIV. Um, so, but the truth is that it's very likely that other statins uh, probably have the same uh, pleiotropic effect and the same protective effect. Again, it highlights, you know, there's uh, something that we've wanted to achieve, which is reducing that excess cardiovascular risk in our patient population. Um, so uh, the, adding a statin uh, may be uh, one way to do this. Um, again, without forgetting about all the other important risk factors. Um, so uh, making sure that uh, if a patient is smoking, really working with them to, um, to achieve smoking cessation, uh, controlling blood pressure, um, and uh, uh, all the other risk factors, all the other traditional risk factors. Um, let's talk a little more about um, the considerations uh, related to antiretrovirals in people uh, living with HIV. Um, so now, you know, we have all these different classes and all these different medications. What are some important points that uh, providers should keep in mind uh, about uh, antiretrovirals in people aging with HIV? So we have a few different populations that we need to think about. So we have people who are naive to treatment, who have, you know, maybe just be diagnosed or haven't been on treatment. Now they're coming on the treatment. We have the population who are switching. So, uh, you know, we're in this age of beyond undetectable. And so we need to be thinking about just because someone is undetectable doesn't mean that they don't need a change in their ART. And so that's our switch population. And then, of course, we have our highly, highly treatment experienced population where, uh, you know, depending on other comorbidities, uh, we may need to be, you know, focusing more on which drug do we need to treat the HIV 
and that could impact based on drug-drug interactions or other pharmacodynamic interactions with other comorbidities. So um, on this slide, we have all the classes of ART, and then we have some uh, class notes, and then more specifically for age notes. So for the INSTEs, we know that these are, are uh, you know, uh, very well tolerated. They are recommended in the guidelines um, for populations um, that we're not as concerned for drug interactions with these, although as a pharmacist, I will say uh, there's there's never a time when there's like no drug interactions. So there still are drug interactions with INSTEs, but they are fewer, much, much fewer than we're used to. But I will caution um, our audience to always check for drug interactions because um, they still do exist with the INSTEs. We need to make sure we're thinking about, um, you know, drug interactions specific to our absorption, uh, because if they're given um, not timed correctly with, with food and with um, calcium, aluminum, et cetera, uh, there can be an issue. We need to think about people who are, are aging, do have GERD, um, have more of these GI issues that they may be using those over-the-counter more frequently. Um, for our NRTIs, uh, you know, not, not too many side effects, especially when we think about our, our newer agents that we're using. Um, we have mentioned before, you know, the differences between the tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate and then tenofovir alafenamide when we're thinking about renal and bone disease. I think a lot of the issues with weight gain are, are uh, coming to fruition, but we're still not really sure exactly what all of the confounders for that are, but it's definitely something to keep in mind, especially dependent upon the uh, goals of the patient regarding their weight, um, if they're already overweight or obese, um, and honestly, treating them for that too, and, and not using an antiretroviral as, as a weight suppressive agent, or because um, we want to make sure that you know they're um, able to get their weight to to where they want their goal to be. Um, and then of course, you know, uh, a back of ear and uh, the potential for cardi cardiovascular risk. So again, as you know, you mentioned. Um, Many times we're talking about cardiovascular risk factors. So we don't want to be adding to those risk factors if it's if it's not necessary. And I think that we have other agents that we can use that we don't need to take that risk. For our NNRTIs, uh, again, really thinking about drug interactions. Um, you know, efavirenz, obviously many um, CNS effects, uh, you know, ropivirine the same. Um, our older ones, you know, that aren't really used as often anymore. Uh, newer deravirine. Um, we talked about food insecurity, so that does not need to be taken with food, um, which is important, and, you know, fewer drug interactions, uh, fewer potential effects on, on weight and things of that nature. Um, for our PIs, again, we know those are the classic drug interaction um, issues, so we need to be monitoring for that. However, there are people for which they do need a protease inhibitor. If they have resistance, um, if they have, uh, you know, issues with adherence, et cetera. So there are places for protease inhibitors, but um, in the aging population, if we don't need to use them based on drug interactions, issues with metabolic syndrome, um, et cetera, um, and again, you know, making sure that we're, we're really going beyond undetectable and seeing what they might need. But there's definitely a, a time and a place for the protease inhibitors. And then the entry and capsid inhibitors, um, we're thinking more so of, our, again, our highly treatment experienced people, um, though, you know, severe, you know, is indicated in people who um, need that drug because of other side effect issues and not necessarily just for resistance. So thinking about that as well. Um, and so, you know, these drugs, um, some of them are injected, some of them are an infusion. So that can cause issues, you know, with um, a person getting to clinic for that, having to come back more frequently um, than they're able to. 
Um, but definitely, uh, you know, thinking that we do have options, uh, many more options than we did for that highly treatment experienced um, population. So overall, again, with, with all these considerations, um, not just looking at the viral load, but thinking about how is this drug affecting the other comorbidities? How is it interacting with other medications? Uh, for example, if someone were to be diagnosed with cancer, and the chemotherapy was going to interact, you know, at that point, yes, we need to switch the medication because at that point, the, the cancer is the more um, prominent issue and we need to make sure that these drugs aren't interacting. So I think uh, people will change antiretroviral therapy more times in their lifetime than we think that they might based on drug interactions, comorbidities, new drugs coming out. So when we're thinking about these drugs, I don't think we can really think about, oh, you know, this is a lifelong therapy. Obviously the person will be on lifelong therapy for HIV, but it probably won't be what they're on today. So it's just a different way of thinking about that and trying to be a little bit more um, dynamic with that based on whatever else is happening with the patient. And that's a very interesting point uh, because I think in the early days, our, the message that our patients um, would receive um, and particularly our, our long-term survivors, our older patients, was um, once you are on a regimen that works for you, you stay with that until, mm -hmm. because the thought was that eventually that would fail and there would be a need to change. So we were trying to um, really uh, spare um, uh, any uh, changes and actually only uh, just use what we, uh, something for as long as we could. Uh, but that has changed now that there are multiple options and something that may be a great uh, option for one patient may not be the best for, you know, another patient. So completely agree with you. Uh, I find myself sometimes, uh, you know, trying to convincing my patients why a change may be necessary. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, you know, sometimes uh, they're a little hesitant because they feel that, well, this has been working. My uh, viral load has been undetectable now for years on this, uh, why do I need to change? So, you know, uh, sometimes there, we need to discuss, you know, why why something else may be uh, a better option for them as they're getting older. And on that note, um, you know, what should we tell Jeff? Um, so which of the uh, following ART strategies is the best choice for Jeff based on the antiretroviral guidelines and his personal characteristics and history that we've been discussing? So the uh, correct answer is D, switching to Bictegravir uh, and Tricytobine Tocivir Alicenamide. Uh, we know that this is the uh, least likely to cause uh, drug interactions of the um, options listed there. Uh, Non-boosted PI regimens are really not recommended, um, even, even as an alternative now. And then um, again, you know, given his uh, potential for cardiovascular disease risk, um, his lipid profile, um, if we do not need a protease inhibitor at this time, you know, we were given no, um, no information about any resistance or whatnot, but we're, you know, we're assuming that he's not resistant and that, you know, he does not need a protease inhibitor, then um, for sure that, you know, Bictegravir having uh, fewer side effects, having less drug interactions, and then the uh, tenofovir alafenamide uh, potentially, you know, having less effects on his kidneys as well as bones, um, especially given his 
uh, what appears to be uh, you know, decreasing renal function at this time. So now that we've decided to make a change in Jeff's medications, we really wanna make sure we're thinking about all of his medications at the same time. So how are they all gonna interact with each other? So we wanna think about polypharmacy. And while there's no universal definition for this, typically anyone who's over five medications, uh, we would consider polypharmacy an issue. And um, as I stated before, that's very easy to do, especially in our aging population. Um, especially if, you know, one or two of those are already taken up with antiretrovirals. And so um, we know in this population, um, there's a high prevalence of polypharmacy. Uh, they may be taking inappropriate drugs uh, based on, you know, drug interactions, et cetera. And one thing that we need to be very cognizant of is pill burden um, and pill fatigue, especially in our um, population that's aging that has maybe been on medications for 30 years. And at the beginning, they had to take, you know, more than five tablets a day. And even though now they're down to one tablet a day, just uh, that reminder of their diagnosis every day can have an effect. Um, the tablets are becoming smaller. We are getting more different formulations of tablets. However, this is definitely um, something that I talk about when, with people when I'm switching their medications and showing them uh, you know, an example tablet if possible to say, is this okay? Will you be able to swallow this? Um, also in our aging population, people may have um, you know, other uh, issues, uh, they may have had types of surgery or other things making it difficult for them to swallow. So it's just always something to think about the, the number and type of, of medications. In terms of our, our outcomes, we know that, you know, drug, drug interactions can be devastating in terms of, you know, uh, threat to uh, resistance if someone's taking medications inappropriately and then you know, they're, they become resistant to an entire class of antiretrovirals, you know, that can be um, honestly, you know, catastrophic in a way. Um, these drug interactions in the aging population can lead to falls. So we saw that, you know, in, in our um, patient today, you know, fell getting out of his car and that could have been, you know, uh, due to something like a drug interaction and maybe not just, you know, accidentally caught his foot somewhere or something of that. Um, and then we get into this idea of prescribing inertia and a prescribing cascade where we give one medication and then, you know, potentially we're, we give an antiretroviral and that might cause nausea. And then now we're treating that person for nausea. And then that, you know, anti-nausea medication is going to have, you know, anticholinergic effects. And so then we're treating that and on and on and on it goes until now this person's on five or six medications. Uh, one is to treat HIV, but then the rest of them we're trying to treat the side effects. So really trying to um, think about the origin of the side effect, what could be causing it, how we're recommending to um, treat those side effects. Now, in some cases, we, we may not be able to get around it, but we just really need to be cognizant of that so that we don't add on medications that aren't necessary. And one other really important tool that we can use is to deprescribe. So to look critically at each medication, um, as you noted, we don't know why this person's on aspirin. Is that something that maybe we can deprescribe? Um, I can't tell you the number of times I've had people come to me um, on everything from lorazepam to warfarin, and they have no idea why they're taking it. Um, someone just keeps prescribing it. And so trying to be a detective and track that down um, to, to deprescribe those medications, I think, um, is really important. And that can be a, a conversation with the, the patient as well. Like, why, why are you on this? Can we stop this? you know, let's stop this, see how you're doing, um, especially if we think that that medication is having negative effects on another comorbidity, um, that they're having a side effect from it. 
to try to really uh, tailor the regimen down to the, the least number of medications they need. Um, so I'll ask you, how do you incorporate um, de-prescribing into your practice? Yeah, I think this is a, a this is fantastic advice. Um, and I find myself dealing with, uh, you know, these exact issues uh, very frequently with my older patients. Um, you know, sometimes they're not really sure why they're on something. Uh, and sometimes uh, the a medication gets refilled that uh, uh, was initially uh, prescribed uh, acutely for a certain period of time, but for some reason, ended up on the medication list. It was never taken off and it just continues, you know, and it's uh, maybe refilled by somebody else. Um, so going through um, and then, uh, you know, doing a medication reconciliation uh, for every visit um, and making sure that, that it's clear uh, both to the patient and to me why the patient is on something um, is very important. So I try to uh, follow your advice and uh, and deprescribe um, you know uh, whenever possible um, and I you know and, and I question uh, does a patient or if they've been on something like for example a PPI uh, right which are the types of medications that are very commonly prescribed maybe for uh, an acute episode and then a patient just ends up taking it and becomes a you know something that they take chronically that they may not need anymore, um, or uh, when it comes to pain medications and inflammatories and SEDs. Um, so um, you know I, I I really like the way that uh, um, you went over these principles and how important it is and how much of an impact it can have uh, on our patients. So our next, our, our last audience response question is, which combination of Jeff's medications is most likely to have contributed to his fall? So the correct answer is A, uh, the Lasartan and the OTC sleep aid. Um, we know that there can be uh, an interaction there where um, you know, Lasartan could be causing some lower blood pressure um, with his vital signs. We see that he is very well controlled on this one medication. So it is possible that if his blood pressure dropped lower, that could have contributed. And then along with, you know, the OTC sleep aid, um, which is further, you know, depressing his uh, nervous system. So those two things together could have contributed to his fall. You know, I think we have we discussed a lot of important points. Uh, now, uh, just going over the case, you know, we talked about um, how he was diagnosed with hypertension, and uh, because of that, he was on Losartan. Uh, but you know, given that he was taking uh, a sleep aid, uh, that that uh, uh, could have very well contributed to uh, his fall, um, which uh, is now leading to the uh, his complaint of uh, knee pain. Um, we talked about uh, the fact that you know this patient. Um, may very well need to be, uh, or at the very least, there should be a discussion about starting a statin. Uh, and in that case, then taking into account, uh, you know, the possible interactions between uh, some statins, uh, uh, like atorvastatin or rosuvastatin, uh, with uh, other medications. Um, we talked about uh, how... Uh, it, we would want to recommend a change in his antiretroviral regimen and we uh, to reduce uh, possible impact on kidney function, on bone health, uh, and also to reduce uh, interactions with other medications. Um, we talked about uh, 
um, the other medications that uh, uh, the patient may be taking uh, over the counter and, and their impact uh, on his health, uh, including uh, his use of uh, a sleep aid um, and uh, uh, pain relievers uh, like uh, like NSAIDs, um, which can then uh, certainly contribute to um, uh, some of his uh, uh, comorbidities. So. Uh, you know, a great example of the type of uh, uh, patient that we see uh, on a daily basis and uh, the considerations that providers should be making uh, when uh, they're seeing their patients who are aging uh, to make sure that they remain healthy uh, as they uh, and that they thrive in their, uh, as they get older. What are some of the things that you you and your team uh, will do to ensure that uh, that we're all on the same page uh, when it comes to taking care of our patients? So, uh, you know, I'm very lucky. The clinics I've worked in, we've had, you know, obviously the providers, but nurses, social work, pharmacists, um, all trying to work together. And so I think the big thing is really just, you know, follow-up. So, for example, when uh, maybe the provider um, finds out that there's an issue with medication access and, you know, is it um, an insurance issue? Is it a, a copay issue? And so having the pharmacists and the social workers work together on that, but then, you know, following up to make sure, okay, was that medication picked up? So I think for me, the biggest thing with multidisciplinary care is, is the follow-up. So if we're, you know, wanting to refer to neurology for assessment, um, following up, did the patient go? Did they, did they make an appointment? Um, can we help them make an appointment before they leave our clinic today? Um, and then if we find out, gosh, the first available isn't for six months, um, is there something we can do or is, is that appropriate? So I think just trying to be, um, you know, a place where the patient can have everything done before they leave. Um, and, you know, with, whether it's a patient care liaison or like a social worker sitting down with them, um, navigating insurance, um, just because, you know, the other provider is affiliated with the institution doesn't necessarily mean maybe they, they take all the insurances. I know there can be very different, you know, financial um, issues that go along with that, making sure the person understands uh, what their payment might be if, say, a, a neurological assessment is covered under medical, um, and then what it, what is their deductible look like, like uh, what time of the year is it, you know, so I think that there's a, a lot going on there, um, a lot revolves around finances, uh, but really just the, the follow-up at the end of it, I think, you know, if we're referring to cardiologists, um, did they go? If the hepatologists, you know, did they go? And kind of realizing that, um, you know, this is a, a large burden on the patient as well. Like they have to go, do they have to park? I'm, you know, I'm in downtown Chicago, parking is very expensive. They might have to take time off of work, et cetera. So just kind of really being cognizant of, do they need the referral? Because um, if they don't, may, you know, they might not, um, be able to go? Can we do multiple appointments in one day? Can they come downtown and, and see multiple people? Can we coordinate that or not? So I think that, um, you know, as we've said, there's definitely, we, we need this team-based approach, but we have to make sure that there's good communication among the team members as well. Well, thank you, Dr. Mary, for your insights today. I think we've all learned something. Um, let's pull it all together with our SMART goals to apply in practice. So after today, we hope that participants will include an assessment of frailty and accelerated aging in age-related risk assessments for every patient aging with HIV, 
they'll that they'll use uh, clinical guideline recommendations and best available evidence to implement best practices in the monitoring and management of chronic comorbidities for patients um, aging with HIV. Um, to think beyond undetectable uh, by reviewing both HIV-related and unrelated medications for polypharmacy concerns, uh, ART optimization strategies at every visit, and to coordinate with a multidisciplinary care team uh, to maximize whole health outcomes for people uh, aging with HIV. So be sure to check out the other activities in this um, uh, CMEO briefcase series. Uh, HIV and substance use disorder, addressing barriers to viral suppression, switching ART due to treatment resistance, ART for people living with HIV who are pregnant or of childbearing potential. Thank you all for participating and providing the best care for your patients. Take care.